all of a sudden, like I looked up and I could see the mast kind of just like wobbling around. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And Ron, who was sleeping, he ran into the cockpit. He's like, what's happened? What's happened? And he thought we had hit something, you know, like a big cargo bo- uh, cargo container or an oil drum or something. And yeah, he's like, what's happened? What's happened? And I'm yelling, the mast is coming down. The mast is coming down. And I like dove inside the companionway, like down into the interior of the boat, literally jumping out of the way. And as I'm doing that, the mast is like crashing down behind me. If someone invited you to drop everything and go on the adventure of a lifetime, one that might never end, Would you accept the invitation? I've been friends with Kyla Fuller for 13 years, and for most of that time, she's been half a world away. During a vacation in Panama in 2013 that was supposed to last a few weeks, Kyla met someone who was preparing to sail across the Pacific Ocean to Australia in his family's boat. He invited her to join, and without ever returning to her apartment in Ottawa, carrying basically her passport, wallet, and two weeks' worth of possessions, she went along. Kyla had no sailing experience then and had never even considered that life on the sea could be an option. Since then, the ocean has become the foundation for her life and career. She's worked on boats in Japan and Australia, circumnavigated the planet, almost died several times, and discovered the things that are most important to her. On this episode of Catch Me Outside, Kyla and I talk about how she got here the sacrifices she's made to live this life, and why it's all worthwhile. Other highlights of this extra-long special episode include Kyla's encounters with pirates, accidentally being towed by a shark, almost being crushed by her own mast, being stranded at the Panama Canal during the early days of the pandemic, falling in love, managing Crohn's disease on the ocean, how to afford living on a boat, how living on a boat can teach a person how little they really need, and Kyla's tips for preserving fruits, veggies, eggs, and cheese without a fridge. Or maybe with a fridge, but for a really long time. Just a note, we recorded this interview in two sessions over different days, so don't be confused if references to recording dates or locations are a little off. Before we get started, I want to shout out listener Colton J, who was the first person to list five toilet puns from the last episode. The winning puns were rebut hole, peanut butter jar, appealing, bidate, as in bidet and debate, and, quote, that would be a bad bidet. For his efforts, Colton gets a brand new, never used, Kulo Clean portable bidet. Colton, you can expect that in the mail soon. Thanks to everyone who subscribed, rated, and reviewed the podcast, shared it with friends, or reached out to let me know you're enjoying it. If you're new to the show and you're enjoying it, please show some love by spreading the word. Anyway, I'm Megan, this is Catch Me Outside, and without further delay, let's get to it. So that doesn't look like that doesn't look like your boat no. where you are right now. Your boat doesn't have a ceiling fan or no, 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 uh, that, a big yeah. curio yeah. cabinet or whatever that is. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> Yeah, so we're um, we're house sitting for 
uh, Ron's boss, good friends of ours for the next three weeks, which is pretty convenient because it's the um, end of summer here and it's still really hot to be living on the boat. So it's nice to have some air con for a couple of weeks. But yeah, the this morning I had to drive Ron to work and I was driving our ute, which is like a like a like a long truck down their driveway and I reversed into their garden and I oh, squished no. all their plants. <laughs> yeah, oh, no. it's really noticeable. <laughs> so oh, no. that was really embarrassing. Ron had to come and like drive the car out of the garden for me because I got stuck. I couldn't go forward because it's up a hill and I couldn't go backwards and I had to move a bunch of rocks and plants. Yeah, it was really traumatizing. So sorry that I'm a little bit late to this. Well, it looks like a nice place. Yeah, it's Um, pretty nice. It's a bit big. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I mean like, okay, what what is the square footage of your boat? And what is your boat named again? So my boat's name is Lazy Travels. It's a brand. The brand is a Bavaria. And it's a 46-foot yacht or 14 meters. Um, okay. And the beam, which is the width across, at the widest yeah. point is uh, 4.35. And the draft, which is the depth, is 1.85 meters. And then, like, what is the square footage of the part where you live? Um, Do you I know? I don't know. It's not that – I mean, it's not super small, but it's not that big either. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, a little bit of math here. <laughs> times 4.35. I would say 30 meters squared. 30 meters squared. Okay, so 30 meters squared to I'm not, feet. I'm not entirely sure if that's accurate. I just, I just uh, did the length times the width divided by two because it's like it's got like a, a like a, it's not a square, you know. Yeah, no, that seems about right. It says three hundred and twenty-two square feet. So our our ceilings our ceilings are only about like maybe six inches above my head. So like there's oh enough there's God. enough space for most people to like walk around. You don't have to duck or anything. But yeah, yeah. the volume isn't there. You know. Yeah, you're not doing backflips and like no <laughs> stuff like that. No, no. Although we can do yoga inside. Me and Ron. Yeah, I know. Which is nice. On, on, like, on the the gently rolling waves mm-hmm. and everything. Yeah, yeah I, I call remember. it boat yoga because you definitely have boat to hold yoga. on. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, so you are in Australia, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and once you lived in Canada, but you haven't lived yeah. in Canada since what year was it? Like twenty twelve. Two two thousand thirteen. I left May two thousand thirteen. Okay, so you left as I recall, on, like, a two-week vacation to Panama? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. I went to visit a friend in Panama just when we when we finished university. Like, I wrote my last exam, didn't even wait for the graduation, just left four days later just to visit a friend, and then, yeah, I never came back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. Your mom came and, like, mo- moved your stuff out of your apartment, and you sent a bunch of us, like, a – some some of our like you know friend circle a message being like hey it's a long story and you're gonna think I'm crazy but um I'm not coming back because I'm gonna sail across the Pacific to Australia or something like that so like how for people listening (laughs) how did that happen can you go go a little bit over the story of how that happened yeah sure so yeah like I said I was in Panama visiting a friend and then through him I met 
a, like a childhood friend of his who was looking for someone to cross the Pacific. And I was like, oh, cool. Like that doesn't really have anything to do with me, you know, like, well, like, okay, neat. And then I met the guy and I was like, oh, like he's a real person, first of all. Um, yeah. And he, yeah, so he was looking for crew um, to sail from Panama to Australia. I was told the trip was going to take six months. Um, it didn't. <laughs> um, Spoiler alert. Yeah. So at the beginning, there was um, two of us on board. So there's three three of us in total, myself, the captain, and another crew member. And yeah, we spent like a couple of weeks sailing around the Panamanian islands called the Lost Perlis in this in the Pacific on the Pacific side of Panama and just kind of like getting a feel for everything and like seeing what it was kind of like um and then he asked me if I wanted to cross the Pacific with him because we got on really well and and everything and I just kind of said yes like I had <laughs> never really even seen a sailboat um, before that time. So it was obviously like a pretty big risk, but I like, I've like read my journal since then. And I was so excited. Like, I just couldn't even believe that that kind of thing was going to happen to me because I'd never really even, I didn't even know that that was a thing to sail on a sailboat, especially to cross yeah. such a big ocean. So yeah, I remember you had a lot of like a lot of really cool plans then. Like you wanted to go back to Patagonia mm -hmm. and and you were just like there were a lot of really adventurous things that you wanted to do, but I don't remember you ever talking about wanting to go live on a boat for the rest of your life. No. Well, I didn't know it was a thing. I'd never even like <laughs> Yeah. I live in I'm from inland Canada from a super small town, so yeah, I didn't know that people lived on sailboats. Um I certainly didn't know it was like something that like a normal person could do. You know, I thought it was something that you did when you were 60 and wealthy and whatever, you know, yeah. but yeah. So, yeah. So then in the end, <clears throat> me and the captain got on really well and we just decided that we were going to do this trip. And um, in the end, we ended up asking the third crew member to not come with us because he uh, wasn't very easy to get along with and mm. he didn't really have like a very helpful attitude like he really wanted us to kind of do a lot of the work and he didn't really want to be involved so yeah so in the end it was just um the skipper and I we decided to do the crossing which was ended up being a lot better because yeah you need people that you're going to be able to rely on and I think that the reason yeah. that he wanted me to come especially over the other guy was because I was um not confrontational and just good at taking instruction, I guess, you know, like I obviously had no idea what I was doing, like no right. idea at all Yeah, what I was doing, yeah. but I was willing to like listen to what he was telling me to do and just do it, you know, without asking a million questions or arguing with it. Just, yeah, I guess hierarchy on a boat is a big deal. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. So how long did you think that crossing to Australia was going? Okay. First of all, why Australia? Um, because this captain that I was with, his name is Daniel. He had his family in Australia. His two brothers were living there. So he wanted to go and, and live there. Um, he was Venezuelan German, so he could have stayed in Panama and worked, but the salary there is very low. And I think he just wasn't really happy to live in South America. So yeah, he wanted to go to Australia where the wages are higher and where his family was. And that's where he wanted yeah. to like be and like, like establish himself. 
So that's why Australia. Plus the weather's good. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And I mean it was good it's good for you too because the pay right is like a lot higher than in Canada. Yeah. hundred um, percent. And you can get um a working holiday visa there pretty easily if you're under thirty and from certain countries like Canada. So that was a good a good like goal for me to get there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so how long did you think that the trip to Australia was going to take? Well six months, you said? Yeah. I was told it was gonna take us six months. Um, but it didn't, I ended up living on board for 14 months and we were, yeah, we were sailing, like doing the actual trip for about 12 months of that. So yeah, obviously we weren't sailing for that whole entire time. Like we spent a lot of time in the Pacific islands, but something that I know now that I definitely didn't know then was like, everything just takes so long on a boat. Like there's no such thing as a two week trip. Like everything just takes two or three times longer than you expect. So, yeah. And why is that? Um, Things break. You have to wait for weather windows. Um, You get delayed just for whatever reason. But, yeah, mostly because out on the ocean, like, things just break all the time. Um, Even if you've got a super reliable boat and new gear, like, stuff breaks. It's a really tough environment. Salt water, everything's moving all the time. And, Yeah, and also in this particular case, we were um, delayed leaving Panama by a couple of weeks, and then it turned in kind of to a couple of months, Um, and in the end, we ended up having to wait in French Polynesia to move further further west because of the cyclone season, so it means that you have to wait for six months, pretty much, so we weren't waiting that whole entire time, um, but because we were delayed, we ended up missing the window to sail from French Polynesia to Australia because of the cyclone season, so that delayed us. Yeah, I remember that as well. And then um, was it on that crossing that you got towed by the shark or was that later on? (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was actually when, if I remember correctly, that was when we were in, um, when we just left Panama. We tried Mm -hmm. to leave Panama like four times before we actually like successfully left the Panamanian Islands to start the crossing because we had some mechanical failures that we had to come back and try and repair. So yeah, I think when we left on the Las Perlas, um, yeah, we were fishing in, uh, in like a kind of a shallow area. And Daniel told us not to fish there, me and the other crew Uh who was on board at this time. Yeah. And yeah, he was fishing and threw the line over and there was lots of fish in the area. And obviously we, we needed to catch meat in order to, to eat, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah, he hooked onto like a baby hammerhead shark. Maybe it was like oh half God. a meter long. Oh, actually, no, there's two times we caught a shark this time. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh this time God. was in the time we got towed. I got the stories confused. Okay. Sorry. Uh, so yeah, this time we caught a baby hammerhead shark and he actually brought it on board and had to like take the hook out of the shark and like it's thrashing around on deck and it was like a little bit scary and, um, anyways, the shark was okay. We put it back in the ocean, but the particular time, sorry, that you asked me about was, um, when we were sailing to the Marquesas, which is from Panama to the Marquesas, it's the longest stretch really on most round the world journeys. Um, we hooked onto like a really big shark, um, maybe more than two meters and quite like, wow. fast, you know, like a, I don't even know really what type of shark like it was, but white a white or one. something. Yeah. Sorry. 
I said like a great white or something or are they in the Atlantic? I don't know. Um, you do get great whites in the Pacific, but I'm not really sure what kind it was, but it was definitely a big one because a first of all, one. this was, yeah. <laughs> this was out in the middle of the ocean. So you really only get like big sharks out there. And yeah. we had all the sails up and I remember it was like pretty early in the morning. So we just both woke up and we hear the line going and we run outside and you can see like a shark swimming, like they swim different than fish, you know, it's darting back and forth like yeah. this and you can see it's it's dorsal fin and the the big tail sticking out of the water and we're like oh no what oh do we God. do like um yeah and we it was pulling the boat so significantly that we were actually not moving even with the sails up this big shark is stopping like stopping this 42 foot boat from moving forward yeah, so you were basically anchored. Like the wind is trying to pull you in the direction you want to go, but the shark is going in the other direction, and it's you're basically like anchored to this shark. Yeah, exactly, oh exactly. God. And um, because we just left the Pacific, and we or because we just left Panama, sorry, and we and we were just starting this big Pacific trip, and we were on such a tight budget, we only had so few lures, and this was like our good fishing lure. So we didn't want to just cut it off and like lose the lure. Cause it means that we're going to lose all the, we're not going to be able to fish as much, you know? So we waited yeah. for like one or two hours while the shark like tried to tried to get it off. But yeah, in the end we had to just cut the line and like let the shark go free because we didn't really have much of a choice, you know? Yeah. And so you were like trying to figure out if you could try to hoist it up and, and release it or something like that yeah. while saving the lure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we wanted to save the lure, but we really just wanted the shark to get off on its own. Like sometimes when it's thrashing, yeah, they're just like let the let the hook out, or yeah. But in the end, it didn't. So we just had to. Oh my god, just a bit. Oh god. Yeah, yeah. I maybe it's. I don't know. I hope it's still out there swimming around. I don't know if they live that long. It's been almost ten years, I guess. But it'll be ten years next year. I know that's crazy. Seriously, what do you what are you gonna do for your ten year? Um, leaving Canada and living on a boat anniversary. Hopefully, Have you thought about it. <laughs> yeah, just for a, <laughs> for a visit. visit. <laughs> yeah, of course. I would be surprised and concerned if you said you were coming home forever. You're like, what yeah, happened? Yeah. It's too cold in um, Canada. And there's no boats, so I can't. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, <laughs> you are not on that boat anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And that was almost ten years ago. So. Mm-hmm. Like, how did you end up? Okay, so your partner now is Ron, um, who you've been with for how long have you and Ron been together now? Seven years. Seven years. And you've been sailing together and working together yeah. the whole time. Um, time. So, yeah. So, what happened after you landed in Australia, more or less? Mm-hmm. Like, so you get to Australia, eventually you get off the boat and you're working on the mainland. And, and then you somehow get back into sailing after kind of saying goodbye to, to Daniel once you've arrived. So how, what happened? How did that happen? Yeah. So, um, I lived with Daniel for about six weeks when we arrived in Australia and I did eventually move off the boat. Um, and I lived, um, and worked on the land for a while. I was a waitress in the gold coast, which was really fun. I met a lot of people. It was a good time, but I really missed being on the water. Um, And at this point, I didn't really realize that, like, I guess I still didn't really realize, like, how many people are out there sailing and that you can be on a boat as a career kind of thing. Like, you can do this as a job. You can work in the marine industry and make money doing it. So, yeah, I'm working as a waitress on the Gold Coast, and I really miss being on the water. So what I did was I called 
the Brisbane tourism office and I said, oh, like I'm, I'm a tourist and I want to know like where I can get on a boat, you know, like where's the best place in Australia to go on a boat. And yeah. I actually called the Brisbane and the Cairns tourism office and they both told me that I should go to Airlie Beach because my idea was that if there's tourists going to these locations on a boat, then I can probably get a job on a boat there. So everyone Smart. told me to go to the Airly Beach to Airly Beach in the Whit Sundays. Um, so yeah, I just I just went there and I posted my resume on a website called Gumtree, um, which is like the Kijiji of Australia, I guess. And yeah, someone hired me. Um, I didn't end up actually working on that boat for very long, but through them, I got a job working on a sailboat, a small sailboat called Prima. I was like a cook cruise attendant, deckhand kind of thing. It was just myself and the skipper working on that boat. And yeah, that's how I ended up meeting Ron was working there. He was the skipper and I was the crew member. So that's how we met. And that's how like, I kind of realized like, Hey, people actually do this as a job. Like you can work on boats and make money. You know, it's not just some fluke that, yeah, that I met someone who happened to have a boat and was doing this. Like there are people who live and work on the water. Yeah, like those are those are careers. They're not like you said. They're not retirees. They're not on vacation. Like mm-hmm. this is this mm-hmm. is their job, and it's a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so you you basically began your career then cooking and and cleaning. I mean, not that that's lowly or what or anything like that. Like no. I I still I serve um, well, you know sometimes too. And I I loved it as well. Like it's a it's kind of more like if you don't have very many boating skills, which I didn't still at this point because even when I crossed the Pacific. Like looking back, I probably didn't learn as much as I could have because I was just mm-hmm. so overwhelmed with the whole situation. Like, geez, I, I never even, I don't even think I'd ever seen the Pacific Ocean before. Like everything was just so different. So yeah, so um, I just kind of did what I could, which is cooking. I knew how to cook. I know how to be yeah. customer service because I'd been a waitress for quite a while in university. So yeah, so I started doing that. I mean, yeah, and that that's kind of just how I how I started working in the marine industry. And yeah. And now you have you have a, a certain license that you've been working on getting, right? So what's what's your status yeah. now professionally? So right now I'm uh I'm a deckhand with a company called Cruise with Sundays here in in um in the Whit Sundays, and I have a ticket called the a coxswain's ticket. It's a weird name. <laughs> um, it's I mean it's a commercial ticket, which means I can drive a boat up to twelve meters. It's like an entry level ticket. Um, I okay. have enough sea time to get a bit, a bigger ticket, but with my visa restrictions, when I first arrived in Australia, it made more sense for me to get this smaller ticket and get a job right away. Um, okay. But I'm doing. I'm working on a task book and getting my sea time so that I can get uh, a master five, which is a commercial ticket up to 24 meters. So nice. that's the next step. Yeah. But okay. And you were trying, so do you have like a captain's license or is it not that simple? Cause I remember you were taking the courses. Yeah. Yeah. So tech, yes, I, I am, uh, I can drive a, uh, any boat up to 12 meters. So okay. I have a captain's ticket, but only up to 12 meters. So, um, right. but you are yeah. captain Kyla. Yeah, Captain Kyla, yeah. <laughs> at at my job, they it, when they do the introductions of the crew, they always introduce me as the small captain because I drive the small boat. I drive the, the tender for the boat yeah. because I'm kind of small myself. So it's yeah. kind of a bit of a joke. I'm small Captain small. Kyla. 
Small Captain Kyla. That's so cute. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so so um so you've been working pretty much. I mean, there there have been a few like you you did another um Pacific Crossing uh and I'll ask you about that too, but other like other than some sailing and some crossings, you've been working like the whole time. So what are some of the jobs that you have done over the the last like you know nine or eight years or whatever to mm-hmm. yeah to support yourself while while you're doing mm-hmm. this I know like I, you worked in Australia you worked in Japan you've worked all over the place what what are some of the jobs that you've held so well the first job I had when I first arrived in Australia like I said I was a waitress for six months and then uh after that I was a crew member on Prima so those are the first two jobs I had in the first job I had in the marine industry and then after that um Ron and I went to Japan through a connection that he'd had um previously he used to work there before and um they asked him to come back and he said he was only going to come if he could bring his own crew member because he's been severely understaffed there before so yeah Yeah. we hadn't really known each other for that long like hold on there's a bird eating the bananas outside (laughs) okay australia problems um (laughs) there's like a big stalk of bananas outside and the bird just landed on it was pecking them and i don't want to eat them (laughs) because they're yours or because you're supposed to protect them yeah, because they're, they're ours, and I'm, I'm waiting till they ripen so I can freeze them, but you have to ripen outside. <laughs> Anyways, um, where was I? So, yeah, he asked me. Yeah, we hadn't known each other for very long, only like four or five months at this point. And he, because my visa was finishing in Australia, we wanted to continue our relationship, you know, but I couldn't really stay and live and work in Australia, and I needed to make money. So we decided that we were going to go to Japan. So we spent... Um, over the next two years, I think we spent 17 months living and working in Japan. So just under two years living and working there. And we worked on, um, for like a Japanese businessman who owned at 1.4, uh, super yachts, um, mostly just small ones, like nothing really mega, like you see in the Caribbean, but like yeah, privately owned luxury motorboats. So yeah, that's we did that for two years. I was like a deckhand and cook, and I cooked a lot there, which I didn't really love because it was super stressful. Like I preferred to be on the deck, but that's just kind of the role that I ended up working. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we did that for two years, and then we bought our own boat, and um, we sailed after like from- sc- saving, 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 yeah. right? Because like you lived on one of the yachts, didn't you? Yeah, so we lived on yeah. one of the we lived on um, one of the boats there, and we had a lot of our like one of the good things about working in the super yacht industry is that you have pretty much all of your expenses paid for. Like they pay for your plane ticket home, they pay for your cell phone, you get like a trout like a a train card and everything. So yeah, I was able to save like a lot of money. I think I saved like seventy five percent of my income while I was working there. Wow, which is, which is wow. huge. But um, yeah. I'm also pretty tight with my money, as I've always been that way. So you're the daughter of an accountant, like, yeah, and, <laughs> and it shows. Yeah, <laughs> and like I remember, we we lived together for several years, and you yeah. taught me about budgeting. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's such an important skill, and like, really, like, yeah. you're, like it, it is true that I have worked 
quite a bit in the last couple of years, but I've also spent a lot of time not working. And the reason that I can do that is because I'm really careful with my money, you know, and when I work, I work really hard. I try and get as much income as I can. And then, yeah, just try to live as cheaply as possible for as long as I can. That's kind of the goal. Yeah. Um, What, what have you given up or, or sort of traded, I guess, in order to, to live this life that you have, that you have for the last like nine years? Um, Cause yeah, it's not like you, you can't have, you can't have it. You can't have everything, right? Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah. it's not a fairy tale. <laughs> so no, it's definitely not all champagne and sunsets. That's for sure. It's a lot of stuff yeah. breaking and making sacrifices and, and like, yes, yeah, hard work and, being prepared for an emergency at any time and especially when you're doing long distance crossings or you're in really remote areas. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously the biggest thing I've given up is being able to see my family whenever I want. Like that's obviously the hardest part. That's true of anyone who travels overseas. Um, yeah. but especially when you're going to like remote locations where there's not really airports where you can easily fly home where you don't necessarily have the budget for that. So yeah, being away from my family is definitely like the number one thing that I've had to to give up. And I've spent like more than two years sometimes without seeing them, which can be really hard. And yeah, yeah. Um, otherwise, like like certain like creature comforts, like hot water is. I mean, we have hot water on the boat that I live on now, but definitely not all the time. Um, I mean, you're always limited by electricity and water consumption so anything related to those two things you're definitely going to be sacrificing so yeah like at the end of the day when you come home having a cold shower is sometimes like not that pleasant (laughs) but you just get used to it I guess and don't shower as often yeah during those cold Australian winters (laughs) it does get a little bit cold here in the winter but yeah I mean not like in Canada obviously um Otherwise, I guess like things like, I mean, I'm really into cooking. So like the galley, like the kitchen that I cook in is super small. We just, I've got limited fridge space and um, like, oh, we've got like a proper cooking area and everything, but I guess you're definitely limited in like the, the cooking facilities. Um, I mean, when my boat's on anchor, when I drive to work every day, I've got to like go into my tender and drive my tender to work. So if it's raining, I'm soaked. If it's wavy, I'm soaked. Because you're exposed. It's like driving a convertible. Yeah. Yeah. But a convertible with not only no top, but no sides. Oh, great. Awesome. So yeah. Okay. Like an ATV or something. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Riding your bike. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, there are like, yeah, some electricity issues sometimes. Like, I mean, obviously I could never have a hair dryer or a hair straightener. I'm I don't really care about those things so much, but yeah. one thing here in Australia that we do have to think about is the heat and uh, yeah. living without air conditioning in the summer can be really horrible. Yeah. And well, you've told me like in the summer on the boat, you wake up like basically when the sun comes up because otherwise mm-hmm. it's it's like too hot. It's too hot mm-hmm. to be down there and then you just mm-hmm. get up. It's- like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's pretty well. Go to bed early. <laughs> that's yeah, definitely, that's definitely the secret, which took me a couple years to work out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you just have to wake up when the sun rises, and obviously the sun rises here pretty early throughout the whole year, so it's pretty rare yeah. that I sleep past six thirty. Like I woke up at, I mean, I'm in a house now still, and I woke up at ten to six this morning. Just that's just what time <laughs> I get up at. Yeah, um, yeah. You kind of it's like backpacking. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you're just like laying in bed sweating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, it's just, yeah, it just makes practical sense to start your day early. And once the sun goes down, like you're wasting headlamp, battery, light, like sh- shining a light on everything. So you might as well just go to sleep and then wake up when the sun comes up and start hiking. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I guess another thing that I didn't really think about that we don't have is we don't have TV. Um, which again is not something that really bothers me because I've never really been a big TV watcher, but mm-hmm. I think for some people that's quite shocking that we don't have TV. Um, yeah. like we don't have a TV at all. We have like this laptop, which I'm talking to you on now, but it's like a super small laptop. That's like at least eight years old and we can watch Netflix on it, but it's not that we don't, yeah, we don't spend that much time watching TV or anything. So that's something yeah. that's a bit different. And I don't watch the news or anything like that. I don't have access to that kind of stuff. So So do you have Wi-Fi on the boat or just data, like your data plans? Yeah, so on the boat now, we don't have any we don't have any Wi-Fi like that's attached to our boat, like a household router or anything, but oh, okay. um Ron has got a really good data plan. He's got like 160 gigabytes of data. Nice. That's really affordable. So yeah, we just like, if we're going to watch Netflix, we connect to his data. But then if he goes away somewhere, like he works on a boat. So if he goes away for a couple of days, yeah, no Netflix for me. <laughs> no Netflix for you. No interviews over Zencaster for <laughs> Totally. Podcast. Yeah. We were supposed to do this interview last week and Ron had to do a trip and I was like, I just, I can't connect to the internet. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's convenient that you ended up house, house sitting, mm-hmm. I guess. So yeah. yeah totally. Um, there's Wi-Fi here, so that's good. Yeah. Well, and obviously like it's harder for you to consume, like to be a consumer. Like you, mm-hmm. I'm sure you're not just like having Amazon packages delivered to your boat. Um, and if something breaks, like, especially if you're out on the water, you're, you can't just go to like mm. Dollarama or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever Canadian tire. These are all Canadian references. Canadian tire. and <laughs> yes, replace it. So. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and and not that that's like a big sacrifice not to consume all the time. Everyone should can should like everyone who can should try to like consume less. But mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. Um, you don't have a lot I, of stuff. Like you keep your yeah. possessions like very very the your number of possessions like very limited, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Um, like my personal possessions, I have like a really small closet I'm putting that in air quotes because it's <laughs> not that much like a household closet or anything like that um like and when I in the wall yeah exactly yeah yeah so I try obviously to like limit my stuff like I frequently go through my stuff and if I like old clothes and stuff I either turn them into rags or donate them um but I mean the big thing on the boat with managing space is like managing all the tools and spare parts and mm. stuff like we because of the budget that we live on and just how kind of how we are we obviously try and fix everything on the boat as much as we can so you need to have spare parts and tools and everything so to store all that stuff yeah you have to 
to make sure you have enough space for it because it does take priority over your personal stuff. You know, like I can't have, I can't take up all the storage on the boat with all of my clothes and shoes if I wanted, because there's other stuff that's more important to store on the boat. So yeah. In, in general, I, especially recently I'm classifying myself as a non-consumer because I pretty much, I don't consume things unless I need it. Like I don't buy clothes. I don't, order like you said or I don't order stuff on Amazon yeah. ever. <laughs> yeah. Unless I need it, you know. Obviously if I need it, I'm going to buy it, but if I don't need it, I'm definitely not buying it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like you would buy like if you needed something for the boat or something like really really practical or whatever, but you yeah. don't really make frivolous purchases or or anything no. like that. Like you just like and you thrift a lot of your clothes anyway, right? A hundred percent. Like the shirt I'm wearing right now is thrifted. The shorts I'm wearing right now are some from the lost and found at my work. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You always pull it off though. I mean, and everything I, I wear is pretty much thrifted or free. The pants I bought on yeah. online, like yeah, it's the shirt becoming free. <laughs> yeah, it's becoming so much more more common and more popular to shop that way. I think among certain people, and I mean, the thrift stores in Australia are so good. So nice. Yeah, it's not like I'm hard done by or anything, but yeah, just I'm careful yeah. with what I purchase because storage and because of my budget, you know. Yeah, yeah, and so okay, so going back to the timeline, so you were working in Japan in um Yoko Two th- no. Two- 2015, 2016, I was working in Japan. No, but what was it? Wasn't Tokyo, Yoko? No, it was Yokohama. Yokohama, okay. Yeah. And and then you saved and saved and saved, and you bought Mm -hmm. all your clothes at the thrift store, and you didn't buy anything frivolous, and you fixed and repaired everything. And then you bought your own boat, the one that you have. No, is it the one you have now? Yeah, it's the one we live on. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then what did you do next? So, yeah. I know the answer. Yeah. (laughs) What was the the big thing that you did after that? (laughs) So yeah, Ron and I decided that um, instead of going back to Australia, we would buy a boat in Europe where they were more affordable. There's lots of ex-charter boats and we would take, we originally thought two years um, (laughs) to sail from Spain, which is, well, we were going to buy it in Europe, but we ended up buying it in Spain. So Spain um, all the way to Australia. So we would, our plan was to sail from Spain, across the Atlantic, across the Panama Canal, across the Pacific, and get to Australia. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That was wow. the plan. <laughs> <laughs> the plan. Yeah. <laughs> but. It, it did work out that way, but it took us, it ended up taking us three years rather than two. So, yeah, going back to working, because we'd saved enough money for two years to do this trip and have, like, a fairly comfortable budget, you know, um, but we were just de- delayed, Um because of the di- the dismasting, um, and because of that, we had to end up. We ended up working in the Caribbean, so we put our boat um, into a charter fleet. It was really hard to find someone who wanted to charter our boat um, because we don't have air conditioning and because we're a monohull rather than a catamaran. So okay. I applied to I think eleven different companies and got a no from every single one of them. <gasps> mm-hmm. Oh no. Yeah, and I spent like literally hours and days applying to companies all over the Caribbean, everywhere from the Bahamas, Cayman Islands to to everywhere in, in the Caribbean. And anyways, in the end, a company that had originally said no to us came back and said, oh, 
we don't really have any like budget boats for people who don't have a massive budget. So we're looking kind of at your boat again, because we didn't have air conditioning and that's what a lot of people want when they go on a trip. So in the end, we ended up using this agent um, and we did two seasons of charter. Like we were the crew. I was the cook deckhand crew member and Ron was the captain because he's got his commercial tickets at that. um, And I didn't have any tickets at that point. So yeah, we, did two seasons of charter in the Caribbean using the, through the agent, which was okay. We didn't make that much money, but, um, we made enough money we made a bit of money the second season, not so much the first season. Um, and we made enough money to make it to Australia, which was the goal. Yeah. Obviously. Oh my God. Okay. And so the dismasting, was that the time you almost got crushed by your own mast? Yes. That is exactly okay. what happened. Yeah. Can you tell me again what happened with that? Because like I have like flashes of memory in my mm-hmm. mind as if like I experienced it, like just like flash and like you're in the cockpit flash and the mast has crushed the cockpit flash. Like what happened? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, we were starting the Atlantic crossing. So we were sailing from the Canary Islands, which is the last European islands towards uh, Cape Verde, which is the first African islands along the Mm -hmm. trip. So we were sailing, you sail kind of like south, and then you start to sail west when you start, when you cross the Atlantic. So we were sailing from the Canary Islands to Cape Verde, which is traditionally like we were thinking it was going to take us six days um, to do that section. And then you go from from the Cape Verdean islands across the Atlantic, which takes about three or four weeks to do that crossing. So about halfway through um we were 270 nautical miles from land so that's about 500 kilometers i believe is my math right um so far from land uh you can't see it no no we hadn't seen land in days Um, (laughs) yeah yeah you can't see land no for sure so yeah so we were out in the middle of the ocean calm seas um which is really good and obviously the middle the middle of the day and yeah i was i was on watch ron was in the bow cabin in the front of the boat he was sleeping and my mom who was on board she came to stay with us for oh, six yeah. months oh mm-hmm, yeah this is like the first time she's ever really been sailing <laughs> oh yeah God. so she, she was inside doing exercise she had like a little workout routine that she was doing while we were at sea and uh yeah i was in the cockpit on watch Um, and I was just sitting there reading a book or whatever. I don't quite remember. And there was like a loud, like bang. And all of a sudden, like I looked up and I could see the mast kind of just like wobbling around. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And uh, Ron, who was sleeping, he ran into the cockpit. He's like, what's happened? What's happened? And he thought we had hit something, you know, like a big cargo, a cargo container or an oil drum or something. And yeah, he's like, what's happened? What's happened? And I'm yelling, the mast is coming down. The mast is coming down. And I like dove inside the companionway, like down into the interior of the boat, literally jumping out of the way. And as I'm doing that, the mast is like crashing down behind me. And the spreaders, which are like the horizontal arms that hold out the rigging on the mast, they landed exactly where I was sitting. Like they definitely would have squished me. Yeah. <sighs> with your mom on board not that it would have been any less awful if you're like I know still I know my mom was on board and yeah so it was pretty hectic obviously and everything on the deck was squished everything 
like our bimini, the spray hood, all all of the sails are in the water. Like our mast is 17 meters long. So it's massive. It's huge. So, and it's landed kind of in the center of the cockpit and is like dragging off of the stern of the boat into the water. And yeah, we've got all these sails in the water and every single thing was squished. It was just so hectic. So yeah, like... Yeah. In in the end, we just, um, like, obviously it took us a couple hours to sort out. The first thing we did was, the first thing we did when it happened was Ron and I ran around the interior of the boat and made sure that we didn't have any holes in the hull and we weren't taking in any water. Because obviously it's one thing if we're dismasted, but it's another thing if we're sinking. So. Like, and- yeah, way out, like, hundreds and hundreds of miles from land. Like Yeah, totally. No help around us. We hadn't seen boats or anything. Um, so yeah, so thankfully we weren't, we hadn't, we didn't have any holes in the boat or anything like that. And then the next thing we did was we used our Garmin satellite communicator. It's like a sat phone, but we can't make phone calls on it. You can just like send texts and stuff. Budget I have one again. Yeah. yeah, you have one. Yeah, yeah. You would use one I when you're- I have mini though. It's like this big. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah. Your listeners would know like, uh, we have a, a, a Garmin in reach. Um, so the- Next thing we did was we sent out like our position to our website where people can follow us. We said like, okay, this has happened. We just want to share our position in case anything happens further, you know, we'll update you as we go along. So I don't think anyone saw it at that particular moment because it's not like anyone was watching us, but at least we <laughs> shared our position in case the worst happens, yeah. you know, and we have to get into the life raft or something. Was it a, was it kind of a relief that you didn't have to try to explain it to your mom somehow? Like, and worry about her worrying about you because she was already there. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Well, actually, when yeah. she's in previous times when stuff has happened on board, like an emergency, I've just not told my mom because right. <laughs> it's just, there's nothing she can do about it. And the added yeah. stress that she's going to feel is not, not really worth it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So we just like secured the mast. We couldn't, um, we couldn't steer the boat because... Uh, they like the autopilot wasn't working. So because the, there was so much drag in the water from the mast being in the water. So we had to, we, we decided, we decided to cut the mast, um, just where it was hanging off the stern of the boat. So, um, and one of my favorite parts of this story is that we, we have like a, a series of Ryobi tools on board. So they're like a battery powered tools. We just charge the batteries, you plug them into various tools and you have electricity. So Ron's got, the grinder in his hand and he's like gonna cut the mast with this grinder and I'm like standing there holding the mast and like getting him tools and everything and he's got the grinder in his hand and he looks at me he's like oh I really wish I had another blade for the grinder you know like I've only got this one and it's not that sharp and I look at him and I go oh well at least you've got the one blade you know like that's good and he turns on the grinder and he hadn't secured it and the grinding blade just went woo and hit no. the water. yeah <laughs> hit the water and we both just see it like sinking to the bottom oh. of the ocean <laughs> so like the one piece of equipment we have to cut this blade to cut the mast is now just sunk what 2000 meters into the ocean like it's gone oh my god <laughs> so down there right now yeah yeah it's out there right now same with our mast it's out there in the middle of the ocean somewhere oh my god it's yeah. a home now. It's a home for like weird little shellfish and <laughs> whatever lives in the bottom of the deep ocean. Ugh. I don't <laughs> want to know. Scary. Yeah. 
makes my back tingle a bit thinking about it. <laughs> you had to like, okay. I mean, I guess you don't panic when, when you do this at, like for your career, because that would, that wouldn't be good. It doesn't help anybody when you panic, but like mm-hmm. you're out in the middle you're you're so isolated mm-hmm. and like I'm guessing you don't see anybody else around like were no. you were you panicking on the inside like were you worried about how like you don't have you don't have a sale now mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. Were you, like <laughs> yeah I, mean, I don't know I mean you're I, I actually in the ocean yeah exactly yeah so I mean I didn't panic because it was calm in the middle of the day if it had happened at nighttime in a storm it would have been way worse like and way more dangerous you know to go out on deck and secure the mast and work out what needed to happen so yeah so Mm -hmm. I mean I we didn't panic it was pretty calm I mean I panicked a little bit when I saw the mast coming down at me but I didn't of course yeah once the mast was secure and we were both on deck working out the situation it was kind of like just let's just solve the problem. So yeah, yeah, like you, like you said, we didn't have any sails and because we're a sailboat, we don't take that much fuel. We don't actually, we can't actually store it, you know? So we didn't have enough fuel to get all the way to the Cape Verdean islands. And if we just let the current take us, we'd end up going out into the middle of the Atlantic, you know, because that's the way the current is flowing. Yeah. So what we did was before we cut the mast off, we attached a serrated knife to our boat hook which is like a long stick we have to grab moorings. And we use okay. the serrated knife to lean over the edge of the boat and cut off a section of our mainsail. Oh my um, God. Yeah. So we cut, it took us a while and like I'm holding on to Ron and then he's holding on to me. We're taking turns, like holding on to each other, <laughs> leaning out over the boat, cutting the sail off. And we ended up saving like about a third of our mainsail. And wow. Yeah, which we were going, which we used to build what's called a jury rig. So we then, once we solved the mast issue, like pushed most of it overboard, we had a section on deck, but we couldn't use it because it's really heavy and everything. Um, So we used our spinnaker pole, which is something that we use for downwind sailing. Um, It's like a six meter long pole that's very thin and easy to, to raise. So we used that. We stuck that in the middle of the boat and used ropes holding it on. Um to secure it on deck pretty much. And we use that as like a mini mast in the section of the sail as, as our sail. And yeah, we sailed, we didn't want to use our fuel because we wanted to save our fuel for when we are amongst the islands and needed to really like be be able to maneuver the boat. So yeah, we sailed most of the way using a jury rig and it was okay. We Yeah. Sorry. We, we, so we sailed 270 miles and we only ended up arriving like 12 hours later than we had hoped. So that's pretty good. Wow. (laughs) That's so impressive. I just can't. Yeah. I just, just the whole story, like just blows my mind. Okay, so what ha- Okay, what is it about the pirate? <laughs> Why is it the number one question asked? <laughs> well, I just, I just remember you. Okay, here's how I remember it. It's mm-hmm. really vague, but like mm-hmm. you were with Ron, mm-hmm. and you were out at sea, and 
some pirates showed up and they like tried to intimidate you and like board your boat or something like that and yeah yeah, in the um in the couple of years I've been sailing I don't know how long it's been I've really only had like two instances where we had an interaction or were like really worried about pirates I think the time that you're talking about is the first time and that's when I was with Daniel actually when we were off the coast of Colombia and um we were like a hundred miles from the shore so like you can't even see land really at at those distances and yeah like a fairly small boat definitely not like an ocean going vessel came up to our boat and there was like six five or six big men in in the boat and they yeah they approached us and were yelling at us in spanish saying luckily daniel speaks spanish so um he was talking to them but saying like oh we need to come on board we need to we need some petrol for our outboard. We haven't got enough petrol to get back to shore and we don't have a VHF radio. We need to use your radio. Like you need to let us come on board so we can get some petrol and use your radio. And we're like, no way. Like there's 0% chance of that happening. That's like someone boarding your boat in the middle of the ocean pretty much. And they're much bigger than both Daniel and I. So that's not the kind of thing you really want to allow happen. So we, if I remember correctly, geez, it was a long time ago. Yeah, we made like a VHF call uh, using our radio out to like try and get someone to bring them out petrol, but no one answered in the end. We just, they kind of got like more and more aggressive about coming onto our boat and we were like, no, it's not happening. Um, And I actually just read my journal entry on this, sorry, I would have forgotten this, but in the end, Daniel actually brought out a handgun that he had on board and was like, fuck off, leave us alone. You're not boarding our boat get away from us and that's pretty much how I learned that Daniel had a gun on board I didn't even know at that point um so so yeah um that's pretty much the only interaction we've had like where we've seen pirates um but uh the other time that we had it uh in what well, we were worried about it I guess was when we sailed to Trinidad twice and that's just off the coast of Venezuela off the northern shore of Venezuela and there's quite a bit of pirate activity there and at this particular time, Ron was actually sailing the boat on his own from Grenada to Trinidad, which is like a 36-hour sail, maybe. Um, so you have to sail overnight for the most of it. And um, there's an oil platform off the coast of Venezuela that's some um, pirates, I'm putting little air quotes around that term, use as like navigation to kind of go out and find boats to pirate. Um, so like six weeks previous to Ron doing this trip, there had been an instance where again, like five or six pirates where I approached like a sailing boat similar to ours. And yeah, there were had like two machine guns, two handguns and open fire on the boat. And, um, it was pretty full on. No one was unfortunately injured, but yeah, it was like an, an attempt at an armed boarding and, in the end, I guess that what I heard from the reports was that the swell was so big that the pirates weren't able to come alongside the sailing boat. And um, eventually they just had to abandon the plan and the sailboat just got away. But yeah, no one was injured, but there was damage sustained to the boats. Their sails had been shot up and yeah, pretty scary. So when we sailed that area, we were like really, really, really cautious. 
I'm waiting now. At this point, a pretty significant audio lag developed and we couldn't talk to each other in real time. Like seriously, we were each hearing what the other person had said like two minutes before. Probably because we were trying to record audio and video from half a planet away with a shaky internet connection. Don't worry though, we got it going again. You hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, good. Okay, okay. okay. Let's do this before it maybe messes up or something. So um, maybe we can just – if you're okay with it, let's – maybe we can can go over now that we're actually speaking to each other in real time. Yeah. Um, yeah, what it was, Mm -hmm. what it was like, you know, being on a boat in international waters or whatever, Mm. when, when the pandemic started and what it's been like since then. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. So, um, I'm just going to say what I said before, but yeah, yeah, (laughs) I might basically (laughs) this time, this time though, I might actually like sometimes interject when you Uh pause Uh to like say things. I'll try to breathe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so when the pandemic first hit, we were in Aruba, um, a Caribbean island. And, it like, for most people, we didn't really think it was, like, a big thing. We were all, like, me and Ron were a little bit worried about it. But we kind of just thought it was so far away from us, it probably wasn't going to affect us. But because there was a lot of cruise ships in Aruba, a lot of the local people were really worried about it because, obviously, Obviously, a lot of the first major outbreaks that they had um, outside of China were on the cruise ships. So the tourism was already starting to be affected there, even within a couple of weeks of the pandemic or of coronavirus, pre-pandemic labeling was really a thing. So when we left Aruba, we were originally going to go from Aruba, spend three weeks in Colombia on the on the um Caribbean Atlantic side and then cross the Panama Canal but yeah we were really quite nervous about what kind of restrictions were going to happen like if COVID started to spread what was going to happen to international travel and what was going to happen to the Panama Canal so we basically decided to sail from Aruba to Panama directly um, uh, and skip over Colombia and I'm so thankful that we did because um if we had arrived in Colombia, the Colombian government wasn't letting boats check out of the country. So if we'd gone mm. to Colombia, I don't even know if our boats still would be there. I actually have a friend of a cruising friend of ours whose yacht is still stuck in Colombia. Oh my god! Is, I know, and it's an it's expensive to keep it there. So I'm really glad that that didn't happen to us. But yeah, basically we uh, then sailed four days from Aruba to Panama, and during those four days, like. <laughs> COVID became a thing. It wasn't just like uh, something that was happening in China anymore. It was now like in Italy, in Europe, um, starting to spread through the States. And I think during those four days is when WHO classified it as like a global pandemic. So basically we went from having like this thing that was just isolated to China, in China to being like this global Mm -hmm. phenomenon. So when we arrived in Panama, luckily we had like a Caribbean wide SIM card. So we were able to check the internet as soon as we arrived. And basically 24 hours before we arrived, we were literally like a day late. Um, the Panamanian government uh, started making all the yachts start doing quarantine. And like, we didn't even know what that was back then. Like now it's such like a known term, but I'd never heard the word quarantine before. You know? Oh, wow. Really? Oh, wow. Oh <laughs> no, my God. Not, not, not in like actual, like people are doing quarantine, you know? Right. So, right. 
Yeah, so we didn't really know what that meant, and we didn't have enough food and everything on board our yacht. Oh, my so, God. Mm-hmm, yeah, it wasn't a very good time for me. Um, they, we had to stay out on anchor in this really rolly anchorage. And when an anchorage is rolling long term, like it really gets to you, you know, like mm-hmm. everything's moving all the time. The cupboard doors are opening and closing all the time. Oh, you God. can't put your drink down on the table because it falls all over the place. Like it's just like low level stress for like weeks. <laughs> and I wasn't in a very good place mentally at the time because I had been kind of unwell for the past, past couple of months. And I was just had put some stress on myself and was not really happy. I was probably maybe even suffering a little bit of depression because yeah. I had been so unwell for the last couple of months. And yeah, when we arrived, the quarantine was completely unexpected. But at the beginning, yachts were still going through the Panama Canal. So we'd see them like come out the marina, go on anchor and then travel to the Panama Canal and do the crossing and go into the Pacific Ocean. So we were still pretty feeling pretty positive. But on about day four or five of our quarantine, the Panamanian government shut the Panama Canal for small yachts and we were like Uh. devastated. I was like borderline panicking. Like Ren was holding it together a bit better than me, but I was not, (laughs) I was not happy. (laughs) Just to clarify Um, is, um, is your, so like when I think of a yacht, I think of like something that I don't know is, is, is like a small Mm -hmm. sailboat also considered a yacht technically? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually don't know what the true term, term for our definition of a yacht is but my boat is considered a yacht it's of oh, okay. a certain size okay um but yeah so it was still open for like big cargo ships and big passenger ferries but it wasn't open to small yachts like mine and ron's yeah and all of the other hundreds of cruisers who cross the panama canal each year to get from the caribbean to to the pacific and yeah there's like time restraints because of the cyclone season in the western pacific so you have to be at certain places before certain times or else you have to wait for six months to Ugh. continue crossing. So there was a little bit of pressure from that. And we didn't want to stay in Panama for very long. It was just supposed to be a brief stop. Because um, you were, if I can interrupt, like you were, mm-hmm. the context of all of this is this was your big like circumnavigation trip, right? The one that you had been like saving for while you were working in Japan and that you had bought the yeah. boat for. So you were mm-hmm. sailing trying to get back to Australia from, I think you started somewhere in Europe, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we started the trip in Spain at this point, like more than two years previous. And yeah, we were trying to within two and a half to three years sail from Spain to Australia, which is like a lot of time. It's a good timeline. But yeah, we didn't really want to be delayed. We'd already been delayed six months um by the map due to the dis yeah, yeah. due to the dismasting which I m- mentioned previously and yeah we didn't really want to be delayed again and Panama is a nice country but there are lots of parts of it that are quite dangerous um so I we didn't really want to stay there for that long but in the end we were there for like three months I think or t- more than I don't know a while between two and three months mostly because of the pandemic. So yeah, when we finally finished our two weeks of quarantine, we went into the marina because we weren't able to go anywhere else. And we stayed in the marina for three weeks waiting for the Panama Canal to open, which we weren't really sure what was going to happen because the only official statement the government had released said that the Panama uh, Canal was closed indefinitely for small yachts. Mm, So that was very devastating news. And 
yeah, basically what happened was we were in the marina just trying to enjoy ourselves as much as we could. It backed onto this really beautiful, like, uh, rainforest nature reserve. There was, like, monkeys and toucans. It was really nice. So we we made the best of it, but and we did some maintenance on our boat. And the day that the Panama Canal opened, the um, coordinator for the marina, I guess, was going around asking all these yachts, like, you have to go three yachts together, three yachts, like, um, uh, in a row together, tied right. up all alongside. To, and then you go in behind like a massive cargo ship. That's how you cross the canal as a small yacht. So there needs to be three yachts of, of uh, certain sizes. So he was going around trying to find a third yacht to join this um, pontoon of two other yachts that were going across. And no one else in the marina was ready. And Ron and I were varnishing our cap rails outside the boat when he when the marina manager came up to us and he's like, oh, are you guys ready to cross the canal? Like there's a crossing <laughs> opening that night. And he's like, how soon can you be ready? And I just remember Ron saying, we'll be ready as soon as the varnish dries. Like, yeah, we are ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> so we didn't okay. waste any time. We just like got ready, left the marina right away. And we were, yeah, we were part of uh, one of three yachts, the first ones to cross the canal when it reopened. Wow. Which was a huge relief. And... Yeah, then we got to the other side and there was even more restrictions on the Panama City side. Um, like Panama is quite a militant country. There's a lot of military presence. So there was a lot of armed guards with like big machine guns all around the city and various checkpoints and lots of rules for the Panamanian people as well as obviously all the tourists who were either stuck there yeah, or trying to get home. So yeah, there was a lot of rules and regulations, and we just tried to get out of there as soon as possible, and we went out to the Las Perlas Islands, um, and we'd already checked out of the country, so we weren't able to go back into the city, so we kind of got stuck there waiting to find out what was going to happen for the rest of the South Pacific Islands. Um, we got stuck there for maybe, I think we were there for like four weeks mm. in these islands, and we obviously couldn't go back to the city so we started to run out of food we had to fish a lot and get our stuff from like a really local dodgy guy who brought us really old food and oh wow like you had like a food, <laughs> food dealer yeah there was like a food dealer who was like a local guy who lived on the islands who would bring his boat to and from the city it's pretty far it was like a day and a half trip between these Whoa. islands and the city so he'd go back and like yeah bring all these like old expired foods back and charge like three times the price and we were like no we don't want to stay here <laughs> yeah yeah that's not ideal so, no it wasn't ideal yeah so we left as soon as we could um and yeah there was like when we arrived in French Polynesia which is the um next place that we stopped after Panama um there wasn't that many restrictions with COVID there. There a lot of the population of French Polynesia lives in really remote islands. So they weren't really affected. They knew about COVID and it was funny to like go into like a remote village of 300 people and see like signs on mm. all, like on the, like the local shop saying, Oh, only two people in allowed at once because yeah. of COVID restrictions. It just seems so like out of place, you know, yeah. in such a remote, in such a remote Island, but obviously it really shows it had spread even to like the most remote remote corners of the world even within like six months of the of it be, becoming classified as a pandemic so um yeah so then we stayed we got to actually stay in French Polynesia for a couple a couple months longer because we weren't allowed for whatever reason still I don't really understand why we weren't allowed to check into French Polynesia when we first arrived mm. so we stayed there like legally, illegally for the first two months because they wouldn't let us check in. So, oh, so you were allowed as, to be there, but you weren't allowed to be there on paper or something like that? Yeah. Oh, weird. Yeah. 
it is it was really weird and it, that's how it was explained to us and we weren't really sure why it was like that but we didn't want to ask that many questions because as a Canadian I can only stay for three months mm-hmm. which we wanted to stay for longer so in the end we ended up being able to stay for five months which was a little bit of like a silver lining in the whole COVID thing but... and, and why did you want to stay for that long rather than like continue sailing was that just because the the like the the seasons were changing and it was no longer going to be safe for you to to trap like continue sailing um no we had always hoped to spend three to six months in french polynesia just mostly because it's just really hard to get to Mm, um it's really hard to sail against the trade winds from australia back that far east um and it's one of the longest distances in a circumnavigation from Panama to French Polynesia. So it's just really difficult to get to. And we've both been there before and we both knew we really, really, really like it there. Um, It's just a really magical place, especially to visit by yacht. So we just wanted to like spend as much time there as we could. And that kind of worked out in our benefit a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then eventually you made it back to Australia. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. So the last way that COVID really affected us was that, um, we learned that Australia had like very strict border rules. So once we arrived in Australia, I was not going to be able to leave to come home, which was kind of my plan to come home for a visit to Canada. Right. So I decided to fly from Tahiti to Canada, like super last minute, like literally six days before we were going to start the crossing. Oh yeah. We decided that, uh, yeah, I was going to go home for three months. I ended up getting stuck for six, but Anyways, to go home for a couple of months to see my family and Ron was going to sail the boat from Tahiti to Australia on his own, which is a really big deal because it's a huge distance. Um, You're literally sailing across the whole entire Pacific Ocean. Jesus Christ. Um, Yeah. And because because of COVID, we would have usually stopped in between Tahiti and Australia at like Fiji, New Caledonia, Vanuatu, Tonga. Um, but all of those border, all of those countries had really strict border closures because yeah. some of them had never even had any cases of COVID and they wanted to keep it that way. Yeah. So yeah, there were not letting any tourists in at all, which we respected and understood and everything, but yeah, it would have meant we had to sail from Tahiti to Australia. Yeah. Without stopping anywhere. So that's what Ron did and he did it on his own. So he did a really good job, but it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So that kind of distance on your own. Yeah. And then, and then through all this, all of this, you both managed not to get COVID, I guess, because you were, <laughs> you were isolating a lot. Um, yeah. But you were dealing with, as you alluded to before, you were dealing with health problems. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that's sort of the, the next question that I have is like, so you've, you've been managing Crohn's disease mm-hmm. uh, like basically through yeah through all of this and <laughs> and it and Crohn's is like that's why you were unwell right on the way to yeah. Panama and it's also mm-hmm. part of the reason why is it okay to say that like that's part of the reason why you you went back to Canada yeah 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 and so yeah like what what's it been like managing um an autoimmune disorder or like a a chronic, a chronic disease. Yeah, a chronic disease when yeah. you don't always have access to the food you need or, you know, there have mm. been st- long stretches where you don't have access to to a doctor. Like uh, yeah. I were <laughs> I I wouldn't want you I wouldn't want you to like change your your lifestyle and 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 adopt a lifestyle that made you unhappy but as mm-hmm. as a friend <laughs> I always wonder like oh man how's Kyla doing yeah imagine how my mom feels <laughs> oh god 
Oh yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, like I've spent periods of my life um suffering more or less. Like I've been dealing with Crohn's disease for about nine years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I was diagnosed in when I was twenty four, so that's two thousand and fifteen, I believe. Uh, while I was living in Japan, and yeah, like I did the whole medication route for two years, and it pretty much did nothing to me except for make my mental health go really downhill. Yeah. Um, being treated as a sick person and thinking of myself as a sick person, it's never something that I've really wanted to like identify with, I guess. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I mean, I can't for sure say that it would have been easier if I just stayed in one place and had constant medical care. I would actually go as far to say as it wouldn't because I think that the way, how can I say this? Not restricting my life too much because of my disease has probably given me a lot more freedoms than I would have had otherwise. And the way I've kind of always viewed it is that like, if medication isn't going to help me, which was my experience Mm -hmm. and the experience of a lot of people who have a disease like Crohn's disease, um, if the medication wasn't going to help me then, and I was going to be suffering anyways, then I would rather be suffering on my boat yeah see doing what I want to do rather than laying in my bed at home just feeling like crap and like I yeah wasn't doing what I wanted anyway so obviously I've had like periods where I've been like pretty good and like I've gone through like months um where I've just felt pretty much normal I would think as as good as a normal person feels but yeah I've had a a couple of times where I've been really 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 unwell and um that particular time when that I was talking about before when we were sailing uh, from Panama to the Marquesas, I really wasn't doing very well mentally. And it definitely had affected my mental health. Like when we were in Panama, that was probably like the lowest part of the whole trip for me. Mm. I was just, honestly, I was a bitch. I was really hard to live with. And Mm. I was really just sad. And I actually said to Ron quite a few times, I feel like my brain has changed. Like I just felt like a different person. You're, Crohn's disease just um, affects your nutrition absorption. So even though I eat really healthy, I've always eaten really healthy, although I eat more, much more healthy now than ever. But yeah, I, I was getting, I was eating the nutrition that I needed, but my body is just not absorbing it. Mm. And I was rapidly losing weight, which is something I've always struggled with. Um, yeah, so I just feel like it, like no, I was basically starving for a couple of months and it affected the chemistry in my brain and I just changed into like a different person temporarily. And that was really not easy on both Ron and I, you know, especially being stuck on board for so long and with so much by the time, so much uncertainty. I was really stressed out about the canal and about being not able to travel home and. And what was going to happen to the boat if we were going to have to leave it and fly home to Canada? Because, of course, when COVID started happening, there was all these pressures for people who are travel- who are overseas to come home. You know, like mm-hmm. the Canadian government was saying, like, you need to come home. Like, we can't help you if you don't listen to our advice. And there was a lot of pressure like that, you know, wondering yeah. what what we should do. So, yeah. Then when we crossed the Panama Canal, I still wasn't feeling very well, but I felt like relatively better because... I wasn't as worried about being stuck in the wrong ocean pretty much. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we left Panama probably when we shouldn't have, um, because of my health, like in consideration of my health. And yeah, when I was sailing, when we were about halfway across from Panama to the Marquesas, I had some like pain in my bum and 
I thought it was a bruise from like sitting for so long because you sit a lot when you're on a monohull when you're at sea. But it wasn't a bruise. It was an abscess. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> um, basically, I was so thin and I had lost like six kilos and I was already thin to begin with. Just doing some math now about how much I got. Um, I'd gotten down to like 42 kilos. So that's 92 pounds. I'm five oh. foot seven. So that's very thin. Oh yeah. Like, like, yeah, not healthy thin at all. Um, and I was in so much pain because of this abscess that I like couldn't stand up. I was throwing up constantly. Oh my God. Um, it was so horrible. And yeah, for the last like 10 days when we were at sea, we were just like really pushing the boat to like get to land because I was in so much pain and, um, yeah, in the end, when I arrived, they, they were super annoying about the COVID restrictions. And when we arrived, we just spent like four weeks at sea and they were crazy about not letting us to shore because they were sure that we were going to have COVID. I, I get that it's a really remote Island and they were being cautious, but I mean, we hadn't interacted with anyone for four weeks and yeah. I was like dying. It sounds like you were actually like kind of dying. Yeah, no, I'm I mean, I obviously don't know, but I'm pretty sure that I was dying because that's Jesus how I felt Christ. at least and because of how much weight I had lost, like I could barely I couldn't stand up. Anyways, Ron was saying over the radio like we have a medical emergency, we need to get someone off the boat like right away and they were really resistant because we hadn't done all the covid checks and it was still all really new so they weren't sure what the procedures were going to be for yeah. bringing people into the country during covid. So yeah, I just remember when, because because like, yeah, like a, a COVID outbreak in in a country mm -hmm. is is like devastating, like for yeah for the people, for the economy, like for healthcare. Mm -hmm. So it's like mm -hmm. yeah, you can understand why they were why cautious. they were being so cautious, but at the same time, like the circumstances were pretty pretty dire. Like you were mm -hmm. like your body was Not shutting well. down. Yeah, my body was shutting down. And also in French Polynesia, which I learned afterwards, they have a, a history of the European explorers coming to Polynesia and basically wiping out like 80 to 90% of the population. I think it was because of smallpox. Yeah. But there was something that happened when the European explorers first arrived. And there is definitely like a lot of like cultural trauma from that experience. So I think that the people in the remote islands were very scared about yeah. COVID totally understandably but in this particular moment when I'm like literally dying I'm yeah. like just bring me to the hospital please and I remember Ron wasn't allowed to come to the shore so he brought me um to the dinghy dock and he had to leave to go back out to the boat and I just had to like climb up this ladder and I was crawling across this like hard rock ground and this doctor who's in this like full pandemic get up like completely covered head to toe he's asking me all these questions and I'm just saying to him like please just let me lay down in your van like I can't even stand up just I'm in so much pain and eventually I got to the hospital and yeah they I had I had emergency surgery two of them where they removed an abscess the size of the doctor's fist from my ah! body mm -hmm. I was in so much pain and the recovery was really hard I was in the hospital for seven days I was on like um I forget what it's called, T uh, TN, the uh, intravenous nutrition through your veins where you get yeah. food because I wasn't able to eat anything because I was so unwell and the doctor wouldn't let me out of the hospital because I was so thin. And anyways, Jesus. it took me like 12 weeks to recover from that. Um, and, and did they put you on antibiotics as well? I refused antibiotics. Yeah, because of the crumb. Um, 
Yeah, because I am just in general kind of against them. So they, I did allow them actually to give me in uh, intravenous antibiotics, okay. but I wouldn't take anything orally. Okay. Um, but yeah, in the end, they actually, the I'm I'm glad the way that I I did it because I did recover after the twelve weeks and I bounced back pretty quickly after getting out of the hospital, like mm-hmm. eating wise. So I was back eating whole foods within like a couple of days, which is really good because I'd gone pretty much weeks without really being able to eat any like, much, you know, I'm eating like maybe 500 calories a day. Crohn's disease is horrible. Seriously. I have sympathy and love for anyone who's suffering from it. It's so hard to deal with and it's you, so hard to manage. You recently for the first time ever, I think met somebody else in person with Crohn's disease, right? Yeah. Yeah. Working at my job, I interact with a lot of people and we do like medical forms. So yeah, someone wrote on there that they had Crohn's disease and I went over and was like hugging them and like, you're the first person I've ever met and blah, blah, blah. So yeah. Yeah. I mean the, the stay in the hospital that I had in French Polynesia, the, the surgeon there was super lovely. He was really knowledgeable. He like top notch surgeons, um, from one of the, a really good school in France um, all the nursing staff were like amazing to me. And although I don't speak French and not many of them spoke English, like I had a really good experience. Yeah. Everyone was really kind and nice to me. And um, I mean, I had to pay out of pocket for the hospital stay, but mm-hmm. it would have been nothing compared to the cost of doing something like that in Canada or the US. Like, oh my gosh, I oh, would be God. completely bankrupt. I would have had to friggin' sell my boat or something if that had happened to me in the States. But the doctor was really nice. And to be honest, he cut me a pretty good deal. I think that the whole entire thing cost me like just under three grand. Okay. Which to save is your life. Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I had two surgeries and I was in the hospital for two, for uh, seven or eight days after. Yeah. And I had after patient care as well for like four weeks. So yeah, that's unheard of. Uh, 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 no. a, a hospital visit <laughs> of a few hours in the U S will cost you that much. So. Totally. A hundred percent. percent. Everyone was super sympathetic to me that I didn't have health care and I mean, even if I had had, I've looked into getting international healthcare before, I, like seriously looked into it, called lots of places, but they don't, they don't cover people who have preconceived or preexisting conditions. So even if I had had health insurance, they wouldn't have covered me for this because I knew beforehand that I had Crohn's disease yeah. and this is from Crohn's. So I'm not trying to be too reckless or anything, but if I can't get insurance to cover me with Crohn's, then what's the point? No, I know. I mean, I, I, I feel like, yeah, with, with Crohn's and, and the lifestyle that you have you're often faced Mm -hmm. with with choices and like you know Mm -hmm. uh and you're like try and make the best of it (laughs) yeah and and whatever choice I I I go with like I'm gonna have to just Mm -hmm. deal with whatever the you know like whatever the consequences are and it's not it's not like it's often not black and white you know it's Mm -hmm. it seems complicated Mm -hmm. And, and so, um, have you, have you met like while, while sailing or, or, um, when you were like doing charters and stuff, have you met Mm -hmm. other cruisers or sailors who have chronic illnesses and, and manage Mm. them? Mm. I would say no. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just stupider or more (laughs) reckless than most. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I guess like partly because I was diagnosed while I was traveling, it's not like I was diagnosed in Canada and then had yeah. to make the decision to like leave Canada. I was already living overseas at the time. You had a whole life and in had Japan. been like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, to answer your question, no, I haven't met anyone. Um, I mean, there are 
lots of like gray nomads living on boats, especially here in Australia, mm-hmm. who would have like would be taking like um insulin or um heart disease medication to prevent um disease. Yeah. But no, I've never met anyone to my knowledge. I mean, I've met people who have arthritis and everything. That's a chronic condition. Yeah. But nothing like Crohn's disease, which can literally like stop you from living your life pretty much. And I mean, I've got, got to give a lot of credit to my partner, Ron, because first of all, he's so supportive and he really does pick up the slack if I'm not feeling well. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't be able to do it like if he wasn't supportive pretty much. And he's also really supportive of me living like an alternative lifestyle where I don't have to take medication. Yeah. He's actually probably more motivated with that than I than I have been, although we've both kind of come around full circle to that now, but only, only in the last like six months have I really become really motivated to fully commit to like a fully healthy diet. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like, how do you manage, like when you're, when you're sailing for, I don't know, like weeks at a time, because I'm sure that happens, right? Like where you Mm -hmm. sail for weeks at a time without being able to Mm -hmm. go on to land, does that happen? Or like, Mm -hmm. yeah. So how, oh, sorry. It does happen, but there are not that many long sails. Like, you have to cross the Atlantic Ocean, which does take about three and a half weeks. Mm-hmm. And then there are two stints across the Pacific that are both more than three weeks. Yeah. But everything else, more or less, is like five days or under. Um, It depends, obviously, like where you choose to cruise. But m- more or less, everything is shorter distances other than those three sections. Right. And so um, when you are, you know, like when, when you are going through an sort of an extended mm-hmm. period away from land how do you mm-hmm. manage because your diet is very restrictive so do mm-hmm. you just stock up on the things that you can eat like while mm. while you while they're available and um that's a good question I mean if I find something that's difficult to find and a store has it I'd like to buy all of it <laughs> <laughs> we have so much storage on our boat and it's not uncommon for Ron and I to have like six months or more of food on board at any one time so we just like stock up but I mean a lot of what I eat is fresh fruits and vegetables yeah so usually what I did would do and what I did for the Atlantic and the Pacific Crossing is I would go into when we were in a town that had a proper market we I went out and bought like three weeks worth of fruits and vegetables in one go. And I just spent like two or three days meal prepping. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though our Atlantic crossing wasn't going to be for two weeks, I did all of the cooking then and I just froze all of the stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, We have a really small freezer. It's like one of those like angle freezers you put in the back of your truck or something. Oh yeah. So so I just put everything into Ziploc bags and froze it. So that's um, worked out really well. And, but there are lots of ways to, like preserve fruits and vegetables. Like if you wrap things like all your fresh herbs, celery, broccoli, all that kind of stuff in tin foil, mm-hmm. it lasts for like, I don't know, like two weeks at what? least. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Just wrapping it in tin foil. You have to keep it in the refrigerator yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, there are lots of things and just making a plan for how you're going to eat all your fruits and veggies, like obviously leaving like potatoes and onions till the very last because they last the longest yeah. and just like, being it, it takes a bit of experience I think to know what's going to go off first and like be, be okay to eat fruits and vegetables that are a little like soggy or bruised because right. that's just kind of how it is you know yeah. and then obviously have like the the frozen meals for the last couple of days when you're at sea and you don't have any fresh stuff but um I would also say that a lot of it is like 
it's never really bothered me that much because I guess it's a lot of it is kind of relative because the first boat that I lived on when I crossed the Pacific the first time in 2013, and this is true of Ron as well, when he was young sailing around with his parents on their yacht, like we didn't have refrigeration oh my God. on the first boat that I lived on. <laughs> so that was before I knew I had Crohn's disease and I wasn't really into nutrition like I am now, but yeah, like that was way harder. So Ron and I's boat is quite nice. It's got a fridge it's got it's got two fridges actually it's got a small freezer so like it's it's just set up so I never really thought about it as being an issue because just okay. compared to what I've had in the past like it's so much better so yeah it's fine <laughs> right I guess yeah. so when you were crossing with Daniel you were mm-hmm. you were eating rice and then like a lot of what you caught right yeah we if we didn't catch fish we didn't have meat Jesus. both for financial reasons and just yeah because of the storage um, but we ate a lot of rice and beans. Daniel's yeah. uh, Venezuelan German, so he was pretty used to eating a lot of rice and beans. Yeah. I'd never even eaten rice and beans before I met really? him, but oh, wow. uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, it's not, I don't know, it's not something I ate as a university student in Canada, yeah. but I did get used to it, and we ate a lot of bloody rice and beans. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we, it, back when we were stealing toilet paper from the university library, yeah. might have it might have benefited us to, to, to think about just having rice and beans. <laughs> I know. I know, totally, yeah. Yeah. But even then, like without the fridge, there are things you can do. Like if you put cheese in oil, fully submerged in oil, it lasts for a couple of weeks outside of the mm. fridge. You can... A thing that a lot of sailors do and that we did as well just to save space in the fridge because obviously our fridge is very small. Yeah. Um, we keep all of the eggs outside of the fridge and you yeah. wrap them in you coat them in Vaseline, each individual egg oh. in Vaseline, and then put them in the carton and every seven days you swap the carton oh like upside down. Um, and the eggs will last for like at least six weeks out wow. of the fridge that way. Wow. And, so even if they're yeah. um pasteurized like I guess that's why you use the Vaseline to restore that yeah yeah that is why yeah I'm not sure about the pasteurization because most eggs outside of North America aren't pasteurized so I I would guess that where we got our eggs from they weren't pasteurized but I don't know yeah because the idea with the Vaseline is that you're blocking off the air from touching the egg which is what makes it expire so you do lose some eggs but like what one in seven or something so you just had to make sure you crack it into a separate container and not ruin your whole omelet or whatever. That's so cool. I'm going to I'm gonna like make definitely make a note of that that egg trick and the cheese thing as well. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, yeah, yeah. It's good for any long-term or any hiking or anything you're going to do where you don't have a fridge. It's a good way to preserve your food. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So your life obviously like t- diverged <laughs> in a really, really, really big way um from you know whatever you thought it was it was going to be what what do you think you'd be doing right now if you hadn't you know gone on that sailing trip oh my god that gosh. first one back in 2013 oh my, oh my yeah 2013 oh my gosh i can't even really imagine it i mean uh, my intention when i left university was always to be a teacher but i'd kind of lost interest in that um in my last year of university and when I finished uni, I didn't have any plans to go to teacher's college. I wanted, I'd done my TESOL course to mm-hmm. teach English overseas. I so I really, 
I really wanted to go and live overseas. That was my plan. So I don't know what I would have been doing long term, but I know that when I finished uni, like I was really determined to go overseas and live somewhere overseas, like not only go and visit, but stay somewhere long term. Yeah. So I guess I probably would have done that for a couple of years. I don't know if I would still be doing it, but something around that. But I mean, I like boating a lot more, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm happy with how things went. <laughs> do, you, what, do you think you'd be essentially the same person? Do you think no? No. What kind of person no. do you think you'd be? I'd definitely spend more time indoors. <laughs> yeah, I'm indoors. <laughs> I'm indoors all the time now. Um, I don't know. I really think that like it's such a hard question because through boating, I met my partner and we've been together for like seven years. So obviously, that's changed my life a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that even with in regards to having a chronic condition, like if I had lived lived a more like traditionally normal life that maybe I would be on medication right now Mm -hmm. and maybe I wouldn't be as healthy as I am right now if I hadn't have had these kind of like more alternative experiences that led me to be a bit more open to new things Mm -hmm. and definitely because I didn't have – access to a doctor like I was pretty much forced to try and cure myself through nutrition because I didn't really have very many other options other than I could stop sailing and just go home and live a normal life which I didn't even really ever consider seriously so yeah yeah no I can imagine you just deciding (laughs) yeah I was like no it's not gonna happen I'm gonna stay out here and suffer and and you're doing like you're you're doing pretty well right now like in terms Mm. of your Crohn's because you're in Australia and and you've been like Mm. flare-up free for a while yeah so well I was since I have not been flare up free for a while, I've been okay. flare up th- free for like a month, which okay. is really good. But I was not very well from October until about February of this year. But yeah, since then I've really gone into pretty deep remission using a bunch of t- different tactics that aren't really, uh, anyways, a lot mainstream. of information that doesn't, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ma- mainstream and not really maybe of interest to the topic of your of podcast. Course, yeah. But yeah. it's um, I, I really really learned a lot in the last year and I feel like I've really finally come to a place where like I know what I need to do yeah and I just need to have the willpower to do it it's in my control yeah so so do you which I'm thankful for oh yeah I mean that's it's been a a long long journey to get there um 100 (laughs) what do you ever have not not regarding Crohn's just in general Mm -hmm. and it's totally fine if the answer is no but do you ever have any Mm -hmm. regrets or like, not do you ever have, but like, yeah, do you have any regrets that you ever think think about? Um, I mean, I regret some things missing out back home. Like, mm-hmm. I do regret not being as close to, well, you. If I lived in Canada, I would be seeing you more often. Yeah. I regret not being there more for my sister. Um, like, I, I feel like I've probably missed out on a lot of, like, milestone events back home that I'm – yeah, just out of touch with pretty yeah. much, especially because I don't always have consistent internet. I mean, now that I'm living in Australia, it's better, but um, yeah, I mean, you're still using biggest... Ron's uh, data for internet because yeah. you're still I, living on the boat. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have internet, but like, yeah, it's not like high speed. I just had to, I had to walk today to come and be able to do this podcast. Yeah. My friend's house, but yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the only regret that I would have is that I, I do miss out on some things back home. And sometimes I feel like because we move around so much, like I don't have like a solid group of girlfriends 
that I get to hang out with all the time. And I definitely feel a little bit isolated because of that sometimes. Mm. And, and Ron's seen me like suffer. Sometimes I get a bit sad and I do miss having like the feeling of when you're in university, you know, where you have the close friends you hang out with a couple times a week, or you can go to the bar. If you're feeling sad, you just call up a girlfriend and you go over to their place. Like I don't really have that because I don't really stay anywhere for that long. Yeah. So I guess I do have a regrets about that, but I mean, I still am quite close with quite a few of my friends from back home, like you, like you and I talk pretty frequently considering I've lived overseas for a long time. (laughs) Probably for as long as like, we must be getting to a point where we've been long distance friends for as long as or longer than we were close up friends. Probably. Yeah. 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 I think you're probably right, actually. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that would probably be my biggest and only regret that I can think of off the top of my head. Just missing out on things and having like the close connections with people that you don't really get when you just stay somewhere for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. But saying that, though, in replacement of that, I am definitely a part of a really close knit cruising community. Yeah. Um, Like everywhere you go, there's always people living on a boat. Yeah. Whether you see it or not, um, there's always people living on yachts. And if you live on a boat, then you are just automatically friends. And there's always like <laughs> hours and hours and hours of stuff that you can talk about just because you have so much in common. Yeah. So I've really met some like really amazing people that I have connected with so easily and so readily. Like it feels like you're best friends, even if you've only known each other for a couple of days. So, so much you do have ground. that. Which, yeah. You have so much common ground and you have like a, a lot of the same desires about for your life and yeah, that's a really nice feeling. But yeah. I do miss my my friends and my family back home a lot. <laughs> no, of course. And I mean, aside yeah. from the the cruising community, there've there've got to be so many things about this life that, you know, just make it worth worth mm-hmm. making those those sacrifices or those mm-hmm. those trades or whatever. So like what what are some of your favorite um elements of of this life that that you're living? That's so different yeah, from sure. what many of us are. <laughs> yeah. I just also I want to say first Oh yeah. I, I don't really feel like I chose to have these things happen to me. I feel a little bit like these things just happened to me without my choice. Okay. Like I didn't I didn't choose to go sailing across the Pacific the first time. I mentioned to someone in passing, oh, I really like boats. I'd like to like live on a boat. Literally mentioned to someone in passing and they said to me, oh, I know someone who's looking for help to cross the Pacific Ocean. Right, it just kind of fell into your lap. <laughs> it just kind of happened to me. So sometimes I feel like like as much as, yeah, you do make decisions about your life for, and make it how you want, like I kind of feel like the universe put me in these positions because that's how my life was supposed to go, whether I wanted it to or not. Right, like there, <laughs> there might not have ever been any other option. Totally, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Like as much as I thought I was going to be a teacher my whole entire life, it was never in the cards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, so I guess – what, what was your question again? What are some oh, just of the like things your I favorite, really... Yeah, favorite yeah. elements of, of, of this life. Um, I really like waking up and being outside every day. Like, I really like that. I feel like I'm, I mean, obviously we have, like I sleep in the interior of my boat, but you just feel so much more in tune with nature. Um, you can hear the wind, you can smell the salt in the ocean like you can hear the birds like you're just so much more in tune with nature and that's probably one of my favorite things um another thing is really like the freedom of it like 
if Ron and I want to, we can just pick up the anchor and just go sailing to Fiji tomorrow if we yeah. wanted. There's no reason we couldn't, you know? Um, and yeah, I just really like like the freedom that we can pick what we want to do. Like we've got plans for us to go cruising to Tasmania in November and December because it's too hot in Airly Beach where we live in the summer. Oh, yeah. and we don't want to spend another summer here during the cyclone and rainy season. So yeah, we're just going to do that because we want to and the freedom uh, to be able to choose that is just really nice. And this might seem a little bit out there, but I really like that I don't have to be a part of society. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's something I've really grown to liking. Like, I don't like big cars. I don't like big houses. I don't like all the poison that they put in all of our food. Mm -hmm. I don't like how selfish people are, it seems like, a lot of the time. And yeah, I just think that if I'm on my boat, I don't really have to participate in a lot of that. Society is very hard to to live with right Mm now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Society is, yeah, it's it's not easy to be a member of society. (laughs) Yeah, I just feel like there's a lot of selfishness and a lot of capitalism. And those things don't really breed happiness, like Mm -hmm. true happiness, where you feel like good down to your soul, you know, and yeah, you get a lot of that feeling living on a boat and that's probably what I really like the most right and it's not like you're always just out for yourself right like you have a community and you help each other out and yeah yeah yeah. and you can I could I'm still a part of the town that I live in like I have a full-time job I love the people I work with I'm not saying everyone is like that I just mean that not in any way are even most people like that but it just seems like when you're just seeing society on a surface level Mm -hmm. that that is kind of the general feeling yeah yeah you've you've got like a healthy (laughs) healthy distance like you're you're still Mm -hmm. a member of society but you've got Mm -hmm. you've got like open water between you (laughs) (laughs) right way to put it (laughs) you don't have to deal with landlords and yeah and yeah and all of that and and rent and traffic and yeah yeah like we yeah, we house-sitted for three weeks earlier this month, and I have to say I hated driving my car to work every day. Yeah. I did not like it at all. I would way rather drive my dinghy to work. There's no traffic. I can go as fast as I want. Like, I don't have to <laughs> – I, I find driving on the land a little bit stressful, to be honest, just maybe because I'm not used to it. But, yeah, I would yeah. way rather be on the boat. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Even I'd... in the rain. <laughs> Even in, in days and days of rain. Um, okay. Could you just Mm -hmm. like stream of consciousness, just list a whole bunch of weird sailing terms? Okay. Sure. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll try and think of some, um, well, we have tacking, jibing, let's see, companionway, scuppers, mezzin, uh, boom, bilge, abaft, stern. Oh my gosh. There's so many keel, um, sloop, catch, all of these words. They're probably all just uh, bottlenecking in your brain right now. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I don't know. I can think of so many. But... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's really good. I, I actually would say, like, if if you are someone who's listening to this who wants to get into boats, the biggest hurdle is learning all of the words because. Yeah. Like, especially with sailing, like the basics of sailing are not that complex. You just have to understand wind, apparent wind, and how to raise and lower a sail. Yeah. But knowing the nautical terms so that you can talk to people, because the words are actually really important. So of course, you know when you're communicating. Words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So the, the terms are probably like one of the most important things to learn in the beginning. And then obviously it takes years and years and years to get all the mechanical stuff and what to do in a, in a breakdown or an emergency or stuff. But the basics are fairly simple. Okay. But okay. Yeah. What's your favorite yeah. ceiling word? Um, galley, because it's where I do all the cooking. <laughs> <laughs> your and domain. Really like <laughs> yeah, that's okay. my domain. Okay, speaking of eating, all right, I have a speed round of of questions for you. I only have like five. It's not going to take long at all. Um, And you're just going to choose one or the other, okay? It's going to be like this or that. Okay, here we go. Sweet or savory? Ooh, savory. Crunchy or chewy? Uh, Chewy. Day or night? Day. Sand or soil? Sand. Fresh or salt water? Ooh, salt. Yay! That's it. <laughs> I thought you were gonna tell me like my fortune or something based on my answers. <laughs> no, um, I here's what I know about you. You like chewy, savory food during the day on sand, besides some salt water. <laughs> it was like chewy, right? The beach. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was chewy, chewy and savory. Yeah. So like, you chew on some beef jerky on the beach mm. during the day by the ocean. <laughs> Sounds like a perfect day to me. 